We hope you are all having an absolutely wonderful summer. We've been enjoying the sun and family time, but we've also been getting ready for an incredible 2022 Achieving Optimal Health Conference with some truly outstanding guest speakers. Please take a minute to register for the conference at AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com. Just click the register button at the top. Remember, you'll get unlimited replays of the conference after it airs. Trisha and I hope all of you can join us at the conference. It's one of our favorite ways to connect with you. The Achieving Optimal Health Conference is such a valuable day for us to really set our intentions and create a truly healthy life. We can't wait to see you there. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Bobby Wegner is a supervising clinical psychologist, a lecturer at Harvard. She's the co-founder and CEO of Groups. She's a speaker, an advisor, and an author of the book, Raising Feminist Boys, A Parent's Guide to Having Age-Appropriate Conversations with Boys About Sexual Responsibility, Consent, Gender, Empathy, and Identity. So welcome to Health Gig, Bobby. Thanks for having me, Doro. I'm excited today because Trisha, who is normally the co-host of the show, could not be with us today unexpectedly, but she was so excited to have discovered you somehow and found you and said, Doro, you are going to love her. And she has an amazing life of wearing many, many hats. So let's just start. If you could just tell us a little bit about you, kind of where you're from and a little bit about your family and your career. And then we're going to jump into some really interesting things. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I've been watching you and Trish's work and there's so much overlap and interest between what I do and what you do. So Trish and I just had a lovely conversation and and I look forward to having one with you too. So in terms of where I spend my time and what I do, I live in Milton, just outside of Boston, and I'm first and foremost a clinical health psychologist. So I do a lot of preventative medicine work. I've worked with medical populations and doing a lot of stress management. And then I, you know, was in the solely practice and realized I wanted to kind of make a bigger impact too. And so I started teaching first at Harvard Grad School of Education on a cross-cultural counseling team and group counseling team start teaching child advocacy. And then now I also teach in their industrial organizational psychology program. So I teach groups and culture and motivation, what drives human behavior, really helping corporate leaders understand the importance of building strong relationships and taking care of your people and using good kind of clinical skills that are stripped down of the clinical psychobabble just to help people understand how to speak and be and and connect with people in a way that's professional, but connected. That's really, you know, what, where I spend most of my time actually is developing groups, which is a group connection platform. So we go into organizations and help leaders and teams understand these skills. And then it's a practice-based model. So it's almost like having a group expert or your own kind of personal team therapist to work with you on an ongoing basis, just to stick with you and understand groups are living, breathing relationships that need care and cultivation. And we, you know, kind of help people do that. And then lastly, I wrote a book called Raising Feminist Boys. So helping parents understand how to deepen relationships with their boys and give them skills to talk with him about things that are often difficult for parents, things like sexuality and gender and consent, 
and just helping parents get tools to kind of not avoid these types of topics so they can move closer, build relationship and help their kids make the best choices they can. So that's a short story. And in the world we live in today, that is ever so important given what's happened. But let's talk about what you're spending most of your time on, which is groups. Exactly what is it? I read that you called it a health club for the head. And I'm interested in knowing really what it is, who it's for, how you get involved with it. This was very much based on the concept of universality. So it's sort of like shared being or shared concerns and giving people a platform to speak and connect together. So we first launched last year, really working, trying to, we built a platform, a custom platform for strangers to come together with a group guide, a guided facilitator and talk about shared issues. So this was really to tackle the mental health crisis, knowing that there are huge obstacles, big expense, a lot of issues with getting support. And so we said, why don't we do a non-clinical offering, not for major depression or psychiatric issues, but things like stress and anxiety and relationship issues and parenting. You could pop in and meet other people going through similar things and have a deeper type of conversation. In the backdrop, we were testing working with teams to have deeper team connection, not talking exactly about this type of stuff, but more like communication and better listening and team mindset and emotional tone of teams. What we learned was the team part is what people were really most excited about. And us as a small team, we were like, let's put our efforts here. We're starting to get interest from big companies. So we've already built part we're launching where we've launched with Boston Children's Hospital. We swear signed and starting with GE Product and Innovation, their leadership team, which is a global team. There's some other big partners that I can't really say out loud, but they're in the pipeline, big kind of Fortune 500 companies that they're really excited because everybody's feeling this disconnection and they're seeing it with high turnover, disengagement, lack of satisfaction, and people are leaving. But the thing that they're really missing is connection and purpose and strong relationships with each other. Well, we know that relationships are the key to our health. I mean, there's exactly. been famous studies that show more than diabetes, more than any other thing, that when our relationships suffer, that our health suffers too. And of course, the loneliness issue and all of those things. What does it exactly look like when you're hired by a company? How long's the program? What does it look like exactly? It's a subscription-based model. So it's really affordable. So we're really trying to say this is important and we can do this in a scalable discounted way. And we can talk about that another time. But the way it works is a company signs up with us. They get access to this platform. And there are four pillars of group connection that I know as a psychologist that we cover. There's basically four workshops that are six groups each, one-hour groups. And they're on composition, which is what's your team makeup? What are your strengths? What are my strengths? How are we intersecting? Just knowing that each group is different. It's just like a family. We have our own unique dynamic. And so let's understand it. Communication. How am I speaking? How am I listening? How do we create space for disagreement that helps us grow? Mm -hmm. Culture is really safety and belonging and trust. How do we build things like vulnerability in to deepen relationships and connection? The other one is cohesion, which is connection. So it's how connected do I feel to you? How connected do I feel to our shared purpose? How connected do I feel to myself in this broader team context? And then what's getting in the way? So basically a team signs on, 
the leader, can we do a needs assessment, an online needs assessment? Like, where should you start? Then the HR person or team leader would click the first group they want to do, say they do cohesion. Then they get assigned a group guide that comes and runs like a six-week workshop Is this effectively. All virtual or all virtual. And then we go back and do a booster group. What I feel really excited about, it's practice-based and ongoing. So like in my private life, people hire me as a psychologist all the time to come give talks. It's expensive to do that for companies. They're one-off, very top-down. And we're saying, no, we can come in and do an ongoing thing with you and get to know your team. We'll come back to a booster group. So there's an accountability there to make sure we're integrating these skills. Yeah. And then we have one-on-one coaching with the team members. So say you're a very introverted person and you're trying to get your voice heard in the group. We know the group. Now we can help you understand different things to try all under the umbrella of being the best kind of group person you can be, knowing that when we feel more connected to our group, we feel better, the team works better and everything's sort of better. Yeah, everything's better. It sounds like a brilliant concept and much needed, especially now with COVID. And how have you seen the impact? How do you measure it and all of that? So we're we're measuring kind of two things. One is really kind of the industrial organizational psych components, which we're focusing on feeling valued and belonging and communication and concepts like that. How seen do you feel in the group? And then the KPIs on the organizational side are engagement, retention, satisfaction. So how long are people staying? And so this is very new for us. So I wish I had this big data set right, right. now to share. We, we just don't. But what we know from the literature is that these things matter and that deepening connection and building relationships is what helps keep people around. Esther Prell is one of my favorite. I'm not sure if you yeah. know her, Doro, but I, I love her. She's just like the coolest. But she will say the quality of our life is determined by the quality of our relationships. And that's just true across the board. And we're trying to help people do that in a practice-based way. It's really true. It's really true. And we've had Vivek Murthy, who's so lovely and written the quintessential sort of, he did that study where he traveled across the country to see what was ailing Americans and discovered that the underlying theme was the loneliness and the lack of connection that people had. I mean, this is just so important. So it would be like in a company, it might be the marketing team or Mm -hmm. whatever team would call you and say, we need some help. Our point person is most often the CHRO or sometimes the CEO. So they see the need and they see the outcome, but they don't know really what to do. And the HR people don't have time to be running kind of all these groups and doing these immersive things. And it's too expensive to be hiring a consultancy to come in and do this in an ongoing way, especially for smaller teams. So we're $250 per person for the whole year to have access to the entire platform. So we're like, we can do this inexpensively and have it be ongoing. And we function almost like the clinical coaching arm to be like the CHRO sidekick. You know, we can like activate it and then work with them to understand what we're hearing. So then they can change the strategy at a higher level. I love it. And it's, we're still early. So everything is, we're still learning, Yeah, but I'm spending a ton of time doing this personally. That's great. And I'm so happy that that's getting off the ground and because it is so needed. But you have written this really interesting book. I have four brothers. I have two boys and two girls. I feel I have a male-dominated family and world. And so I love your book that you've written about raising feminist boys. And I'd love 
to talk to you for a minute about Amazing. that. Yeah. So I know that the title is Raising Feminist Boys and feminist is different than feminine, right? Exactly. So can you explain just why you wanted to write the book and a little bit about what that means? So I have two boys and I have a daughter and it started off for me. Most of what I do is driven by what I'm experiencing or kind of like a personal curiosity. And then I mash it up with psychology. So my middle son was about six or something. And, you know, we were listening to the radio. We're listening to NPR one day and they were talking sort of about the Me Too movement and all the stuff that's happening. And I felt myself being like, oh God, I've got to run over and turn down the radio. My son's listening. Like, what am I going to do? But then I caught myself and I was like, I think this is the problem. We're literally turning off the information and they're just pretending it doesn't exist when we know that around sexual assault and sexual harassment, the rates are super high. Like one in five women are victims of rape, like not just sexual assault or sexual harassment, like rape. And that's that's huge. So then I was like, wow, this is really, really prevalent. And when this happens, it's often crimes of opportunity, not people jumping out of bushes. It's younger boys kind of pushing too far in college age boys. And I'm thinking I have two young white boys coming from pretty privileged positions, you know, just indirectly the messaging sort of like the world's yours. And I'm thinking, wow, I have to How lucky first are they, you know, but how do they recognize that to be able to make a better impact and know their positioning and all of the world is not for their taking. And how do I have them understand that? So anyway, I kept the radio on. I took a gamble. It was one of these parenting moments where it's like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'll give this a shot. And I said to my son, like, are you listening to this? And I said, this guy's getting in big trouble. He was touching women when they didn't want to be touched and saying things that were making women feel uncomfortable. And he had known that, you know, or public media people that got in trouble for this. He had heard about them doing this. And what he said was, I didn't know that was like illegal effectively. And he was five and six. And I was thinking he's internalized this message that this is okay in some way without me even realizing because our children are absorbing information that are well beyond what the parents are offering. So I'm trying to help parents understand where their kids are developmentally and then give tools to have these types of conversations in a way that feels connecting and not totally freaky or to scare kids or parents or anything like that. Your little boy was five when you... I think he was like five or six and young. Well, that is young. How do you raise a conscious young man? What are some of the tools Yeah, I think that's a really great way to think about it, Doro, is like really raising consciousness. So in this book, we talk a lot about sex and sexuality and when to start these types of conversations, because often we wait until high school and it's almost like too late when, you know, at that point they're being fed by their peers and their moral and their identity development's already like closed, sort of. I mean, it's not too late, but you have opportunity at younger age. But I think tactical tools are really like not teaching, but taking a curious stance with our children, like noticing and wondering with them and letting them take the lead and understanding no matter what, kids are active people fumbling their way through life, just like all of us and having someone along their side to be curious, to not judge, to provide a frame, but explore with them. So how do you do that with kids across different age spans? And I think what it comes down to is creating a safe, trusting place where children feel like they can come to you and you're not going to like be really upset if they share something that they've tried or they had a curiosity or question about. 
This comes up with internet stuff all the time. And how do you actually join them in it and try to say like, well, what did that feel like for you? What are you wrestling with? Because most kids feel multiple things at once. So you try to like open it up for them and then think alongside them, which is different than saying do or don't. Which is different. Well, of course, I'm quite a bit older than you and my parents were. I mean, we avoided uncomfortable conversations. I mean, I don't even think my parents mentioned the birds and the bees to me. I don't know how I learned how to do anything. (laughs) And then, of course, it gets passed down generationally. My children were of ages that I felt like I should talk. You know, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so nervous. But I really think (laughs) I should tell my girls about, you know, certain things. It can be uncomfortable. Completely. the nice thing is that my daughter's generation is probably your generation. And they're much more aware of how to address some of these things. Do you think talking about some of these issues with boys is different than talking about them with girls? Or how do you approach that? That's a great question. But I want to touch on the first comment you made too, because it (laughs) makes me So like, you might assume that I kind of grew up in some super hippie family or something. I'm the fifth child in a very conservative Irish Catholic family. (laughs) My mom was like horrified when I wrote this book and like, we did not talk about sex either. You know, we went to church every Sunday and I'm the youngest of five. And my mom was 42 when she had me. My dad was 45. So my dad has since passed, but my mom's 86. They're just a different generation, right? But I think the thing and why I wrote this book is because as parents, None of us have been parents before until we've had kids. And when we're in unknown territory, we pull on what we call default parenting maps. Like you pull on prior information to guide decisions. And this comes up with sex and sexuality. So we feel discomfort because we're like, I don't know what to do. I never had this conversation. (laughs) But that's creating a lot of really negative outcomes in our culture and our society because we're avoiding these big topics. So I'm like, okay, how can we put this in a frame that feels relatively comfortable for parents? That's more of a curious perspective than a book about sex perspective, you know, and helping parents acknowledge that it's okay to feel uncomfortable. And none of us are super psyched about doing this. And especially (laughs) if we've come from pretty conservative backgrounds. My children also went to Catholic schools and all of that. And I was actually just talking about this with my son who was up visiting me recently. And he just remembers being horrified by the films that were shown in Catholic school. He goes, Mom, he said, I'm still scarred by these awful. I mean, it was just approached so differently, but we were laughing about it. You went to BC, right, Doro? Yes, you? I did. I so did. My, my son goes to BC High, the middle school. Oh, so it's a, okay. it's a Jesuit school, you know? Yes. And so I'm always like making jokes that I'm going to get him kicked out. I mean, I lo- it's the best <laughs> match for us in our family. But, you know, you would not assume that my son goes to a Jesuit school, which is sort of funny. <laughs> There's a lot of pluses, but the sexuality education yeah. was not a plus. Yeah. So talk about gender stereotypes. So we get with gender stereotypes and biases in general, there's so much like thinking about where we are with DEIB right now and just like even organizations feeling pressure to create a community of safety and belonging. And then what we can do is like, that's well-intentioned, but we often miss the mark because we feel bad because we think like, God, I find myself being a little biased or a little sexist or a little racist or whatever it is. And then thinking like, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I'm just going to shove it down. But we have to step back and realize this is actually how our brain's wired. 
So for safety and belonging, we put people into buckets in our mind because Mm -hmm. our brain is always looking for the path of least resistance. So we pull on past messaging, past experience to categorize people. And our brain is not trying to be emotional about it. They're just trying to sort information. And the way our kind of culture is set up, we have different associations with different people or different types of people. But then we internalize this and then we feel this cognitive dissonance. Like I sort of find myself closing the windows when I'm in a bad neighborhood or something. And why is this even a bad neighborhood? Nothing's ever happened here. But it's not beating yourself up about it. It's actually acknowledging those moments And then being curious, I'm noticing myself rolling the windows up right now. And I'm wondering why, you know, what's the meaning that I've attributed here? And where did I get that meaning from? And is that meaning actually valid? So it's opening up conversation, whether it's gender or racism or anything. It's just like acknowledging that we're wired for biases based on our cognitive schemas. And then the way we undo that is not to feel bad about it, to be curious about it and change the way we're thinking and give ourselves opportunities to learn new experiences. How can we help our children develop awareness, which we're talking about, and empathy toward others? So I think a lot of what we're talking about with like roll the windows up, it's like kids are exposed to our circles. It's like we tend to live in communities where people are like us. And then we don't have exposure to other people. And then this sort of like expands over time. And so we have to be really thoughtful and intentional about who we're like kind of giving our children the opportunity to be connected with. And if there's not a diverse population within our neighborhood, how do we actually seek that out? How do we notice that and name it with our kids? A lot of it's noticing and naming Mm. just so they realize there's something else. And then like something parents can help kids do in a tactical way is there's always someone whose voice is not heard on the playground, in the classroom. So just look around, like who's not being included here and why? And then what can you do to actually include that person? That could be just like, say hi or be curious, but like teach them those little skills to always look for who's not included and then teach them to really be an upstander, to like take an initiative and name that it feels uncomfortable. You might feel a little weird about that, but like that has a lot of value. You're going to make that person's day and you're being a good guy. So like help them kind of push through the weirdness that they feel let them also feel the outcome if it feels really good to help somebody out and be a upstander. My boys went to a little Catholic school called Modern Day, and it just was simple. It was all boys, but the school motto was play hard, pray hard, and be a good guy, which I thought was so sweet. Uh Um, I don't know why being a good person is the resistance path in so many cases. And I think your thoughts about teaching boys and girls early to be uncomfortable and stand up for others and do the small gesture of kindness and that it does pay off. But there's all these issues, and I think it's more middle school or whatever, of popularity and I guess shifting what's popular one little boy at a time maybe is what you're aiming for helping kids understand kind of what it feels like and what I think if we tie it back into the impact of sexual assault and things, teaching empathy, like having children understand what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes. Behavior hurts when you're careless. So whether you're choosing to just ignore the kid on the side at the playground because it puts you at a social risk or not understanding the impact of a sexual assault because you've never actually thought about what it feels like on the other end to have your boundaries broken. It's like having kids take a curious stance. Like, what do you think it would feel like there? If you were the kid in the wheelchair or whatever, not being able to play, watching all the other kids, what do you imagine it would feel like? So perspective taking, 
at a young age is really helpful. It's just like changing that automatic thought where it's easier to ignore. Yeah. You know, and I think yeah. it's a culture we've gotten a little bit like lazy. It's easier to ignore things, but that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> that has really bad long-term outcomes for us in a community as culture, but like for us personally, it doesn't feel good to just be self-focused, you know? So true. What about social media and young boys and girls, I guess? It's such a different landscape than when I was growing up and, and you too. It's just, yeah. there's certain things that's changed the way we consume information and there's no going back. What we've learned and what the research tells us, it's like we can monitor, but completely shutting down. Kids find ways to get into things online. So you're much better off moving towards conversation and again, being like passengers in their life and being curious about what they're seeing. What mm. we know too, thinking about pornography, for example, like, you know, when I was growing up, there might be like a Playboy in a garage or something like that. But images on the internet now, you could find anything at any moment, even if you're not seeking it. You just stumble upon it based on keyword searches and things. Mm. And so kids are exposed to much more graphic things. I think the first age of exposure is somewhere between nine and 11, which is really, really young. It shapes how they see themselves, how they see others, how they see sexuality. They know they're looking at something that's not right. They're not going to tell you unless you kind of ask in a non-judging way. And then you can kind of help them understand what they're seeing. So I think the best bet is to know that they're getting lots of messaging and then being curious and then helping them understand what's real life and what's not. We've talked about groups, which is a really cool platform. We've talked about your amazing book. What else in your life should we talk about? And what are your days like? You're a busy professional. You have three children, I think, two yep. boys and a girl, and they're little. What do you do every day? How do you get <laughs> through the day? And also, how do you take care of yourself? So right now, you know, I think there are sort of seasons of life. So my children are 13, 11, and 8. And so I was home more with them when they were younger and I had the privilege and benefit that my husband could sort of work full time and I could spend more time at home. And then maybe four years ago or five years ago, I started wanting kind of more and felt like my family situation was in a position where I could go out and I really wanted to build groups or something like groups and help people bring psychology to a bigger platform. I spent so much time and energy, mainly on groups, then teaching. I gave up my practice about a year ago, but it fuels me. You know, like I feel really driven. It brings pleasure and vitality to me, but I'm working a ton. If I'm being honest, I'm like an okay mom right now. I'm not killing it in the momming <laughs> category. I feel like I'm in honest, good relationship with my kids. I think I'm modeling following something that is important and I want them to see that. And I try to give voice to the fact that I want to be with them more and I need to be in communication with them and they need to tell me we need to work together to feel our way through this as we're going through this kind of busy time. You know, we're raising money and pitching companies like it's a little crazy, but I feel like they're seeing me as a working mom do it. And I like that. You're setting an example for them to give back in life, to do something that you're passionate about. And I think that's so great. So when you pitch to the companies, I'm just curious, are you going to the companies in person? You're not doing that online. A lot of it's online still, yeah. actually. Um, okay. And companies are at all different stages, but some companies we go to in person. It just either way, I'm open to it. You know, it's kind of like whatever people want and who's our audience. 
since our show is health gig, we talk about health journeys of our guests. What do you do to take care of yourself? So every day I get up and I go for almost a two to three mile walk. So that is really, really, really important to me. I feel like it's a quiet time. I get grounded. I listen to music, which I really love. Cooking, I love too. And that's something I can do with my family. My walk, I almost always want to go alone. My husband will like, can I come? I'm like, "Uh, not really. But cooking is something that like brings me such joy. And I feel like it's also very relational, which is important. And then I also love hosting dinner parties. I love having people over and then doing a big kind of dinner, like wine, friend, kind of crazy people, kids running everywhere. Those are my big things and reading too, actually. But So is there anything else that you have on the horizon that you want to share? Oh, you're so nice. Right now, I'm so excited about groups. We've been chipping away at it for a while, and now it's like coming to fruition. And that is just super exciting. I get the chills even saying that. So it's really following that for now and hopefully for a long time. Any books? So I do want to write a book. (laughs) No, I actually emailed my editor last week because I know this material so well. And I feel like it's something to offer, like writing a book on helping corporate leaders develop the skills that we're teaching. HBR just came out with an article, I think yesterday, about leaders don't give feedback like as much as they should because it's uncomfortable because they don't really know how to do it in a way that's sensitive and like person focused. But these are all like psych type therapy skills that we can teach people. Giving feedback is really important and you can do it in a way that, you know, makes people feel okay about it. And those are the classes I teach. So I'd like to write a book on that one day. I just love that stuff. Bobby, it's just been such a pleasure to have you. And I want to ask you, if I'm a corporate CEO and I want to find you, how do I find you? My website is Dr. Dr. Bobby, B-O-B-B-I, Wegner, W-E-G-N-E-R.com. So that's sort of my professional home space. And then we have joingroups.com. So groups with two O's. So that's where all group stuff goes that way. Or you can email me. I'm like very, I love connecting. That's what we're doing. And it's Bobby, B-O-B-B-I dot W at joingroups.com. It's such a pleasure to have you on Health Gig today. And you're just doing so many wonderful things in the world. And I thank you for that. And thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks, Doro. I wish we had more time because now I want to flip it and ask about all your amazingness (laughs) because we're doing similar stuff. Yes. And I feel like I just spoke to you for a million hours about me, but you're, you're doing this work too. Let's connect about it. And thank you again for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.